This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize drugs and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize care in your own practice. And it's my great pleasure today to welcome Dr. Jules Sameter, who is a professor of medicine, the associate program director for GI and hepatology fellowship in our Arizona campus. He's also the associate medical director for the Department of Development and the program lead for genomics in action for the Center for Individualized Medicine. His focus is on inherited cancers, and in particular, the application to genomic testing to cancer care. Dr. Sameter, welcome today. We'd like to talk today in detail about some of the research that you've been doing on inherited cancers. You recently published two articles on cancer and genetic testing. Can you tell me about the studies and what you found? Great. Well, thank you, Denise, for having me on the program today. This is a topic that's obviously very close to my heart as to how to bring individualized medicine to the care of all patients at Mayo and specifically to cancer patients. The two studies that you talked about, the first one was published in JAMA Oncology a few months ago, and then we have a follow-up publication looking at colorectal cancer specifically that's in press now in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology. So the basis of both of these studies was to look at how often were there genetic predispositions that were present in our cancer patients that either led to the development of their cancer, might offer prevention opportunities, or focused therapeutic options for them. To do this study, we received a transformational grant from the Mayo Clinic Foundation, and this allowed us to put together a large prospective cohort study that occurred at all three of our destination cancer centers in Arizona, Florida, and Rochester, and then eventually expanded to one of our community campuses in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The study enrolled close to 3,000 cancer patients with a variety of cancers. There was no limitation in the type of cancer you could have, your age or your gender. And we offered all of these patients genetic testing using the largest multi-gene panel at that time, which had 83 or 84 cancer genes. These are genes, uh, some of which your audience is familiar with, uh, those for breast and ovarian cancer, like BRCA1 and BRCA2, Lynch syndrome, but also many other moderate and lower penetrance cancer genes that your audience probably is not as familiar with. The testing was made available to each of these participants at no cost to them. 
in order to relieve the bottleneck that usually occurs from needing to see a genetic counselor is you really can't do this in real time if you're trying to test every cancer patient and you institute every patient has to see face-to-face -face a genetic counselor for even 30 minutes. So to try and get around that bottleneck in our cancer practice, we created a customized seven to 10 minute patient education video about genetic testing that every cancer patient saw. That seemed to answer the questions and the anxieties around genetic testing for over 95% of the cancer patients. The test results were then reviewed by genetic counselors on the back end before being revealed to the patient. And then we followed them up to see what was the impact on their prevention, management, as well as if family members underwent genetic testing. So the first paper was really summarizing the data on all 3,000 papers at kind of a 30,000 foot level of what we found. And then the second paper was delving into the 300 or so patients that had colorectal cancer specifically and looking at their findings and some of those attributes. What did you find? What were the major findings in terms of the uptake of patients? Were they receptive to doing the testing? Was the educational video useful for them? You know, and I think one of the big barriers often for patients to get genetic testing is cost and also fear of finding out what the results show. Absolutely. Those are great questions. So first, very, very few patients actually refused to partake in the study uh, of cancer patients. We only had five patients that actually refused participation out of the study out of the 3000. An equal number, about five uh, to 10 patients felt that the video wasn't sufficient and asked for a genetic counseling visit in parallel or in addition to participation in the study. So again, the video seemed to work very well in answering the questions as well as reviewing the pros and cons of genetic testing to well over 95% of these patients. Your second question about the major findings. So we were really surprised to find that nearly one in six to one in eight cancer patients, depending on which type of cancer they had, carried a genetic predisposition to the development of their cancer. This number was as high as one in four in women with ovarian cancer. So 25% of the women that were in the study with ovarian cancer carried a genetic predisposition to cancer, which they likely inherited from one side of the family or the other. Even in cancers, which are not typically thought to be highly genetic or familial, such as pancreas cancer or prostate cancer, we found 15% of those patients, or one in six patients, carried a genetic predisposition. It was especially important in those two groups is we actually found a number of the patients carried genetic mutations or abnormalities in the BRCA1 and 2 genes or in Lynch syndrome. Why that's important is we actually have targeted medications such as PARP inhibitors, which can target the BRCA mutation abnormality, or immunotherapy which works extremely well in patients whose cancer is due to Lynch syndrome. So we didn't just find in many of these patients the cause of their cancer, providing them with a diagnosis. We also were able to offer them the opportunity to prevent future cancers by understanding what genetic predisposition they or their family members had. And in a subset, in about 30% of patients, we found we could offer them targeted treatment, either changes to the medication treatment they had, the type of chemo or immunotherapy, or changes to the type of surgical planning that they went through. For example, a woman 
who has breast cancer, but is found to have a BRCA mutation, doesn't have just a lumpectomy or even a unilateral mastectomy, but should be offered bilateral mastectomy because of the very high risk of contralateral breast cancer. Your third question uh, is one that I deal with in our genetics clinic all the time, is about what are the risks of genetic testing and the costs and how do we allay those fears? So first, in terms of cost, just five to seven years ago, the cost of genetic testing was thousands of dollars. And you can only test for one, two, or a handful of genes at a time. That has radically changed in the last few years with the advent of next generation sequencing, where we can study not just one, two, or three genes, but close to 100 cancer genes on the single sample of blood or even saliva sample. The cost of testing has gone from thousands of dollars down to even if you had no insurance at all, most of the commercial testing companies now have self-pay options or out-of-pocket maximums that cap the cost at $250 to $300. So for a few hundred dollars, you can get top-of-the-line cancer genetic testing covering anywhere from 10 to close to 100 cancer genes. The other worry that patients have, rightfully, is how could this impact health, life, and disability insurance? So health insurance, there is a federal statute called GINA, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, that states health insurers cannot access genetic testing information and use it to change your premium or preclude you from purchasing a health insurance policy. There are some caveats of groups not covered or covered under different statutes, those working for the military, the VA, or the federal government. But in general, GINA covers the vast population. Life and disability insurance are different. Those are not covered under the statute, and they can ask to see genetic testing information if you were to go and purchase a new policy. If you already have a policy in place for life or disability insurance, that cannot be changed once it's in place. So I think that allays the fears of most of the patients around insurance and specifically health insurance. And then cost, like I said, has become less of a concern with many of the testing labs have, uh, having maximums of a few hundred dollars. That's extremely interesting, Dr. Samater. One of the questions I think that often those of us in the office have when we see our patient is, gosh, do we need testing? So you deal with this every day. And the question, I guess, for our, many of our listening audience is, how do I figure out if I even need to think about sending my patient for genetic counseling or genetic testing? What are the cancers I should be asking about it? What kind of information should I ask about with regards to family history? that would make me worry that maybe this patient in front of me is at risk for a genetic cancer or, or carries one of these genes that would put them at risk for a cancer. Perfect, thank you for that question and very important. And it needs to be something that can be done fairly efficiently in a high throughput internal medicine or primary care family medicine type practice. So having complex algorithms, doesn't work so well in a busy practice. So the main things we talk about is age of cancer onset. So I would say almost anyone with cancer diagnosed under the age of 60 probably would benefit from at least a discussion about genetics or inherited factors. And the younger the age is, so if you have a 40 or 50-year-old with uh, any type of cancer, that definitely merits genetic assessment. 
Number two is family history. So even if you have an unaffected person in front of you, we usually recommend getting a three-generation family history. What does that mean? That means starting with the proband's generation, them and their siblings, the generation below them, which is usually their children who may or may not have had time to develop cancer if they're young, and at least their parents and their uncles and aunts, which would constitute a three-generation pedigree. Or you can even go up to grandparents on both the maternal and paternal side. You want to try and get within the three-generation pedigree who developed cancer, what kind of cancer they developed, and the age at which they developed cancer. And again, the buzzwords would be, if you start seeing a cluster of any type of cancer on one side of the family more than the other, or if there are close relatives developing cancer at below age 60, typical cancers that often will cluster together on one side of the family that raise the flag for inherited susceptibility will be breast and ovarian cancer together, colon and uterine cancer together, large clusterings of melanoma cancers or pancreatic cancers would also be red flags. So that's family history. One of the things that our articles does start to flesh out though is even with these typical risk factors we look at, age of onset of cancer, family history, that they seem to miss a lot of patients who have a genetic predisposition. We found in our study that more than a quarter and really closer to 40% of patients who had a genetic mutation found on our testing platform would not have been referred for genetic counseling or testing if relying on national guidelines, such as those from the NCCN. This leads us to think that, well, maybe one opportunity is almost any patient with cancer could be offered genetic counseling and genetic testing, because now it doesn't just help inform the diagnosis, but may have implications for prevention of future cancers in them or their family. And in a minority or subset of these patients, it may offer therapeutic options, including innovative drugs such as PARP inhibitors or immunotherapy or enrollment into clinical trials that are ongoing that require a certain type of genetic abnormality present in the patient or in their tumor. Finally, I would really recommend to our viewership that no one would expect everyone to be familiar with or comfortable with all of these caveats of genetic testing. And really that's why we have geneticists and genetic counselors on each of our campuses where you can refer your patients for a discussion of if the patient or their family meets criteria or would benefit from genetic testing, and then identifying what type of genetic test should be performed, how large a gene panel, for example, should be performed, and then the follow-up of those results, as well as a detailed discussion of the risks and benefits and costs associated with genetic testing. And so really, genetic counseling and our genetics clinics are there to assist all of our viewers and primary care physicians in making this a reality for our patients. Thanks. That answers a lot of the questions I had. I think one of the issues that's come up also is that the issue of are there differences between different genetic pools, different ethnicities? And I know that's probably difficult to answer, but are there trends out there? What do we know? What do we know about people of different colors and races? Do we have to worry? Do we think, do we know enough yet to know, will these patterns be the same? Will they be different? Do we have any suggestion yet about what we can tell our patients who are diverse? 
Great question. And so the historical answer is absolutely. We want, we want to ask on the pedigree that we take, what is the patient's ethnicity and ancestry? And some of the typical ones where, again, could be red flags is if someone has Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. We know that group has a number of founder genetic mutations, both associated with colon cancer, like Lynch syndrome, as well as BRCA, which are the breast and ovarian cancer syndromes. Other groups that we traditionally think about with an increased genetic predisposition would be French Canadians, for example. But as we do more and more sequencing, we have found that even in ethnic groups that we did not think of having a high prevalence of these genetic conditions, we're finding a significant number. And that really relates back to what you talked about, that for a long time, genomics research has been focused in a North European population or in North America uh, and Northern Europe. And we don't really have a wealth of genomic sequencing data in Africans or in Asians or in Hispanics. We are trying to change that. And one of the steps we're doing at Mayo Clinic to do is we've actually created two sister studies. One that's running in Arizona called Gemini, which is offering genetic testing with that same large 83-84 gene panel to cancer patients that are Hispanic, Latino, or of Native American descent being seen at our Mayo Clinic Cancer Center here. And then in partnership with our Florida campus, we've actually opened a similar study at the St. Vincent's Riverside Hospital in downtown Jacksonville that cares for a larger, diverse community, including a substantial number of African-American cancer patients. Again, that's going to help us understand what are the barriers to genetic testing in other cultures and populations. Maybe it's different. Maybe we need to understand how to better approach those populations and understand the barriers and their hesitations for genetic testing or for research for that matter. How do they communicate those findings to their family members? And also to understand that simple question that you started with, what's the prevalence of these genetic conditions in other ethnic groups? Your second study looks specifically at colorectal cancers. Are there similar studies coming out about the other major cancer syndromes like breast and ovarian from your larger initial study? And do you have any preliminary results or any thoughts about those? Absolutely. And I think you'll see a stream of publications following up on each of the tumor groups. So colorectal was the first one we finished analyzing in depth. The next one will probably be pancreas and biliary cancers followed by gastric, esophageal, then breast, ovarian, melanoma, and sarcoma cancers are all kind of uh, coming through in terms of analysis. So we will have a number of papers delving into each of these specific cancers going through, you know, how often do we find a genetic mutation? How often were they missed? What were the implications for treatment? What extending back, the big picture we're seeing is doesn't matter what cancer we're looking at, I would say anywhere between 10% as a low and 25% as a high, and probably the median being around 15%. So most cancers, 15% of patients have a genetic abnormality, anywhere from 25 to 50% of those patients would have been missed 
by using standard national guidelines. The miss rate is lower for cancers where there are broader guidelines available, such as breast and colorectal. And the miss rates are much higher in cancers like pancreas cancer, where there were no guidelines or very limited guidelines for testing for a long time. And then in a minority, around 10 to 20% of patients, we do see modifications in their medical treatment as well as surgical management. One of the things that all of the papers are, are showing is that one of our missteps, I think in genetics, has been the inability, once we've diagnosed that proband patient with a genetic condition, to transmit that information to their family members. That's basically low-hanging fruit of cancer prevention. So if a person has a BRCA2 mutation, they sitting in front of you may already have breast or ovarian cancer. And yes, you may be able to prevent a future cancer in them or optimize their treatment. But the biggest bang for your buck may be identifying if their sister or brother or child also has that same genetic predisposition and altogether preventing cancer in that other generation. Our studies have shown that for a variety of reasons. It's not financial exclusively because in our study, we actually made that family variant testing as it's referred to, or a cascade testing as you're cascading to another generation available for no cost. And even then the uptake amongst other family members was less than 20%. And so there are probably a number of non-financial barriers. Maybe it's the emotional distress of that new diagnosis. Maybe it's the lack of connection of family members not living close by to each other. Maybe it's as providers, we don't give enough information that can make it easily palatable in lay language to transmit that information to other family members. So since the hat I wear in the Center for Individualized Medicine is education, it really sounds like I have my work cut out for me since it would seem that from all the information you've shared with us today, the real strength or the real promise in genomics in action with regards to identifying these variants or genetic lineages that predispose towards cancer is not only in the cancer once it's been found in terms of alterations in therapy and potentially curative therapy, but also identifying at-risk individuals before they truly develop the malignancy, whether it's to basically find it early and treat it or identifying people who need to have increased surveillance of malignancy so that we can find it. And we don't seem to be doing a very good job of that. So that uh, developing tools that will inform people of how they can send that information on to their siblings and other members of the family to get them to consider getting the testing necessary to figure out whether or not they carry the gene that may put them at risk is really a key really a public health initiative that we ought to be looking at from a genomics in action perspective. Absolutely. And this is something that I think our groups can partner between the education as well as genomics in action as to how to best educate our patients about genetic testing, as well as transmit those findings reliably to other family members to really incorporate prevention as a whole into the strategy of care that Mayo Clinic offers. And I think part of that education, obviously, is not only with the patients, because as a primary care doctor, usually I may make that diagnosis, but then my patient goes to the oncologist, and I may not see that patient back till five years after they've been effectively treated, 
or perhaps many years down the line after they're now in either a long-term cure state or unfortunately where the malignancy has basically put them in a position where they're in hospice, but not much happens in between that time of diagnosis and that time where they undergo treatment to basically to, to tell me that message that contact family or send family members a message or send a letter out or you know, what can I learn from this case in terms of what are the germline mutations and what do we need to worry about? Because that two-way communication doesn't always occur in my practice. And I'm sure for the people in our audience who may not have the luxury of being tightly connected in a multidisciplinary healthcare unit like I have here in Rochester and you have there in Arizona, that communication line must, is probably much more fragmented and fractured. And so that we can think about better ways of making the communication between our oncology specialists and the primary care doctors and providers who are sending patients for definitive care of these patients with new identified malignancy. Absolutely. I know we don't have a lot of time left. What are the take-home messages here about inherited cancers? What should we be thinking about when we see our patients What should we be doing? And what is the promise, perhaps, of identifying these genes that predispose people to cancer? Thank you again for having me on the program and the opportunity to reach our viewership in primary care here with this uh, discussion. I think the take-home messages are that genetics is going to revolutionize every aspect of our practice, whether that's the medical, prevention, primary care, and surgical practice. But the first area we're going to see the greatest effect on is in oncology or in cancer. In this arena, I think genetics will offer us the ability to prevent cancer in those that are at higher risk by targeting chemo prevention, imaging, endoscopy, and prophylactic surgery. It's going to help us identify targeted treatment options for these patients with BRCA, Lynch, and a a number of other genes where we have targeted treatment options available that may improve survival long-term. And then number three, for patients, it's going to give them a diagnosis. One of the things I often hear from cancer patients is, why did I get this cancer? Why does this cancer run in my family? And sometimes even if there's no change in treatment or the ability to prevent the cancer, that simple diagnosis can help a family understand what is going on. In terms of take-home messages, I think it's genetic testing has traditionally been offered to patients with younger onset cancers. We typically think of anybody at less than age 60 being younger onset with cancer or those with a strong family history, meaning a close first or multiple second degree relatives with uh, related cancers such as colon, uterine, breast, or ovarian cancer. However, now with the fact that cost of testing is down to a few hundred dollars can be done on a blood sample or even a mailed in saliva sample, genetic testing is really coming into the forefront of being offered to all cancer patients at the time of their diagnosis or during their treatment journey to try and help again with diagnosis, prevention, and therapy. Our genetics clinics, including genetic counselors, are there to assist with all of those conversations from pre-test counseling to identifying what is the best panel available for testing, as well as the cost and insurance implications that patients want to know about. So please access our services in the Department of Clinical Genomics. 
Thank you, Dr. Slameter. It's been a great pleasure to have you today to talk to us on a podcast about familial genetics and genomics in action. I think you've had very important messages to share with us with regard to how we can better take care of our patients and identify patients who are at risk for genetic cancers. It's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you.